0: I promise to support and guide you on every single episode. Let's begin.
1: Hi, and welcome to another episode of the Fertility Warriors podcast. I'm really excited to bring you today's episode. You'll know that a few episodes ago, we had Molly Nichols talking about how to cope with the emotions of recurrent loss many episodes back i did another podcast on how to survive miscarriage but today we have brought a fertility specialist dr melinda lee on the podcast to talk about some of the more medical aspects of loss and particularly recurrent loss so i was looking at dr lee's profile and i was a little bit fangirling because i was like oh my goodness You studied at Stanford, you went to Harvard Medical School, you speak conversational Mandarin, so I was a little bit like, "Mm, who run the world? (laughs) So um, Dr. Melinda Lee is at Spring Fertility. So Spring Fertility has a whole bunch of clinics across California, and then also randomly one in Vancouver, but it's my pleasure to welcome you here to the podcast today, and thank you so much for being our guest.
2: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to talk about this. It's extremely topic very, I'm very passionate about, and I love seeing patients and kind of walking them through this. And it's also my first podcast interview, so thank you.
1: So I'm really going to grill you here today, and I know that this is sort of one of your areas of interest or your specialties, and I'm seeing a lot of people come through like my program, my audience and things like that, who have or are experiencing recurrent loss. Or some people even just get to this stage of like unexplained infertility where there may have been chemical pregnancies and things like that. And they're kind of looking for answers and the next steps. So I guess the first logical place for us to start is When we are first trying to conceive or we first experience a pregnancy, what are the chances that it will result in a loss of some description?
2: In a loss, that's a great question, Robin. So essentially, it's it's what, it's very dependent on the woman's age at the time that she conceives. But generally speaking, miscarriage, unfortunately, is extremely devastating, but also extremely extremely common. And so when you think about women across the entire. Reproductive lifespan, if you will, when you first find out you're pregnant, sometimes the miscarriage rate can be as high as 25 to 30 percent. It can be higher than that, even in women who are over the ages of, you know, 40 and over. Um, and it can be lower than that, too, of course, for women who are younger. But generally speaking, about a quarter of all pregnancies will have the potential to unfortunately end in a loss
1: okay and how after we've experienced one loss let's just for the sake of age pretend that we're like early 30s what are the chances of us experiencing then a second loss
2: probably in the same percentage range
1: unfortunately okay. yeah. yeah so still a 75% chance that things will you know continue as they should What are the typical causes of loss and particularly recurrent loss?
2: Sure. So I'd break it down, I'd like to just break down what the term recurrent pregnancy loss means because honestly, even in the medical community, it's still a little bit up for debate when we should start the medical evaluation for recurrent loss. So many people classically used to think of it as three Mm. um, pregnancy losses in a row. And now specialists such as myself and others, you know, other OBGYNs around the world, I think are starting to think about a true evaluation closer to two losses, just because, you know, it's a lot, it's so much to go through, and we just want to make sure that there are not any reversible or treatable causes of the miscarriage. So when you say thinking about what are the common causes, it runs a wide range. And when I see patients for the first time in the office to talk about recurrent losses, the first thing I ask them is you know other than the the basics you know age medical history mm-hmm. how long it took them to conceive those sorts of things the first thing i ask them is what were the how far along in the pregnancy did they get before they miscarried because that really gives us an idea of what the underlying cause may be mm-hmm. and the reason i ask that is because early losses ones that happen before a heartbeat can be detected some that are called biochemical pregnancies By far and away, the most common etiology is that the fetus was not chromosomally or genetically normal. And those are, unfortunately, what we consider oftentimes physiologic miscarriages in that there's nothing wrong with the body or the reproductive organs or anything like that. It's just bad luck and a combination of what we call aneuploidy in the medical community. And those are what I consider physiologic causes of miscarriage. Okay. We have an entire workup also to look for other um, uh, contributors of miscarriages as well. But most women who are experiencing one loss or an early loss for the first time, they typically will not get the entire medical evaluation for that.
1: Okay. And what, when we talk about permanent zonely really abnormal...
2: <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it's a I, mouthful.
1: I know. I, I think it's important to note that it doesn't necessarily mean the egg was chromosomally abnormal, but I feel like, especially with new research as well, it sometimes can mean that the sperm was chromosomally abnormal. And I always remember my fertility specialist explaining to me that the sperm, like the DNA has to cram itself into this tiny, tiny, tiny head of a sperm. And that that's not the easiest thing to happen so i think would you agree like it's normal for everyone to have a certain percentage of eggs sperm that are chromosomally abnormal because it's like they're tiny little cells tiny little things
2: yes for sure i think that it's definitely possible that it's not egg related that said it is the reason why miscarriages happen at a higher rate as as we grow older is generally speaking most commonly due to the likelihood of the egg having a chromosome abnormality that said it's very possible that it could be sperm or even post-fertilization that it could lead to chromosomal abnormalities at that time as well. So there are both age-dependent and age-independent kind of causes to why a fetus may come together and not have the right genetics.
1: So is that just, so when it happens sort of like post-fertilization, is that just a matter of like it's splitting, it's splitting, it's splitting, and something just doesn't go quite right in terms of splitting of these cells? Yeah. Yeah, Um, unfortunately. And so, can you see that? You can't see that when it's at like a blastocyst level, can you?
2: So for patients who are undergoing IVF or in vitro fertilization, there is the chance to do reimplantation genetic testing for aneuploidy specifically at the blastocyst level. You know, decades ago, years ago, we were doing it at the cleavage stage, so on a day three embryo. But in contemporary IVF practice, it's it's almost pre- entirely done at the blastocyst stage. So we can test for aneuploidies. Um, and that is one of the reasons why people may come to a fertility specialist, as you Know, to do IVF with PGTA.
1: So outside of chromosomal abnormalities, mm-hmm. what are some of the other causes of loss? So when we think
2: about people who have recurrent losses, there are a couple of buckets that I like to evaluate for the patient. So the first thing is that we typically would recommend that both partners get genetic testings themselves. Mm-hmm. And we do this with what's called a karyotype, which is a simple blood draw to look at your maternal and the paternal chromosomes. And what we're really looking for here is what's called translocations or mosaicisms. And that just means that the chromosomes have arranged themselves in a specific manner that may lead you to have not the right combination in your offspring and can lead to um, miscarriages. It's overall pretty rare, but about if it would it may come up positive in about two to five percent of all couples or patients who are experiencing recurrent loss, and if somebody is detected to have a you know a balanced translocation or evidence of mosaicism themselves, then we typically would recommend them to go to see a genetic counselor for counseling, and then consider uh, if they wanted to, they could do IVF with testing to select for embryos that have balanced complement of chromosomes. So that's the first thing It's genetic causes, probably the rarest, but something that you don't want to miss. And it's, it's always good to know. The second thing we look at is to assess the uterus, because there are a couple of things that can go on in the uterus or the womb that may lead to recurrent miscarriages. And I always think about the uterine environment in, in a couple of ways. First, there's the things that people are born with. So there is possibility for someone to have what we call in the medical community, a malarian anomaly. So either they were born with a uterus that just has one horn, or a uterus that's more heart-shaped and has two horns, or what's called a septum, where there's almost a little wall at the top of the uterus that can lead to recurrent miscarriages. And so it's important to really assess the uterus, which we do in a number of ways uh, with a couple of different imaging tests. And most fertility specialists are well-versed in how to perform these tests. There are also things that can affect the uterus that can develop over time. So these are things like fibroids or polyps, which are growth of the uterus but can still affect implantation and contribute to loss. And the last bucket of uterine etiologies would be what's considered acquired uh, uterine issues such as an example would be an infection or scarring if someone has had previous surgery on their uterus. And these are all things that we can evaluate pretty easily in the office to just make sure that they are not contributing to the losses because oftentimes those are things that we can treat and surgically improve to prevent the risk of future miscarriage. So that's the first one we talked about was Genetics. The next one we talked about was the uterus. And the third kind of large bucket is autoimmune disorders that may contribute to recurrent miscarriage. And the most common one that we think about when undergoing a recurrent miscarriage evaluation is looking for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, which is another mouthful, but it's essentially an autoimmune disorder where you have elevated antibodies that are evident in your blood that can contribute to small blood clots that can affect pregnancy. This can be positive in up to even 25 to 40% of women who experience recurrent loss, so very, very common. There's a number of, I'm sorry, I feel like I'm just going on and on. (laughs) We are here
1: to listen and learn. Yep.
2: Um, I was just going to say, there's a couple of other things we, we also throw in there, such as endocrine disorders. We look, we always evaluate the thyroid. We often will look at prolactin levels and, you know, screening for things like diabetes. But these are much more done if they're clinically
1: indicated. Certainly, like you mentioned that 25 to 45% of women with recurrent loss, there's some kind of like autoimmune factor that can be going on and so what kind of tests would you typically run for that and do you would you like so if you have a client with infertility who's visiting you for the first time and you're doing the general like induction screening are they tests mm-hmm. that you run then, or are they tests that you would wait to run until they have experienced a loss or multiple loss,
0: loss?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So, the the specific testing for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome is a couple of antibody levels in the blood. So, a patient comes in, they get their blood drawn, and we, you know, look uh, assess for things like lupus anticoagulant. There's a, <laughs> there's a number of other antibodies that we don't need to go into details, but essentially, there's a specific set of diagnostic criteria. to to screen for people for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. There's also clinical manifestations such as recurrent loss is one of them. And another one would be somebody who maybe had a very preterm birth or Mm -hmm. had placental insufficiency Mm -hmm. in a previous pregnancy. Mm -hmm. And so because it's a very clinically driven diagnosis, you have to have the lab criteria, but also the clinical manifestations. We don't actually work up all... Infertility patients for this. The reason is that is that first of all, if it's a medical evaluation that they may not actually need because it doesn't necessarily contribute to infertility, just recurrent loss or having an obstetric complication. Mm-hmm. And the second reason is actually because you know if someone is found to have the clinical diagnosis of antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. The treatment is actually not completely benign in that oftentimes we will use blood thinners like aspirin or something like heparin, which I certainly wouldn't want to prescribe for all patients who are just trying to get pregnant, only if I think it will clinically make a difference and improve their outcomes. So for those reasons, we just work up, uh, we typically just send that work up on patients who have uh, have a history of a recurrent loss or another obstetric complication.
1: Okay. And in terms of sort of like thyroid conditions and things like that, is that sort of the same thing that you would only typically, I guess, I mean, I guess the next thing is for us to maybe talk about what tests people should advocate for when they first go to a fertility clinic and then what tests they need to advocate for. Because I do know, and I do feel like as you mentioned at the beginning, across fertility clinics, the way that they manage loss and the way that they manage recurrent loss, and even the standard tests that they run when someone first comes to the clinic, it really varies across clinics, countries, and things like that. So, um, and you can obviously only speak to what you do at your (laughs) clinic and you are not like we, you know, we always have to add these disclaimers. You are a fertility specialist. You are not everyone who is listening's fertility specialist. So it's important. This is just food for thought considerations and things for everybody listening to bring up with their particular fertility specialist. However, can we maybe just take a step back and what kind of, when someone first lands at your Fertility clinic and assuming that they have not just been to like an OBGYN before because I I always advocate for just go to a fertility specialist because a fertility specialist Mm -hmm. sees like for example endometriosis 100 times a month whereas an (laughs) OBGYN might see it like two times a month so I just feel like skip the OBGYN get the referral straight to the (laughs) special someone lands at your clinic what kind of testing do you run straight off the bat without recurrent loss? Basically just someone's been trying to conceive; They don't know why they're not falling pregnant. What kind of testing do you run in that scenario typically? That standard yeah. Thing?
2: So the first thing I would recommend is you know what I typically do right then and there in the clinic is do an ultrasound just to get a sense of does the uterus look normal in shape and contour and look at the ovaries importantly and what the ovaries are you know we can see if they have anything that looks abnormal, like an endometrioma, which could give you a sense of you know, the underlying infertility diagnosis. And also importantly, it gives us a sense of the antral follicle count, which will is essentially a proxy for how well they will respond to medications should they go through fertility treatments. Along those same lines, on that first visit, what I typically do is get additional hormone markers for ovarian reserve. So looking at them with an ultrasound and counting the antral follicles is one way to know, you know, Am I, Melinda, a 30-something-year-old woman in, you know, do I have high ovarian reserve, normal ovarian reserve, low ovarian reserve, and is that contributing to my my situation? And then to corroborate that, I would get something called an anti-Mullerian hormone, which is a hormone level that it can be drawn at any point in the menstrual cycle, so it's very convenient. You don't have to wait for a specific point to have it drawn. You can have an IUD in, you can have beyond birth control pills, on, you know, it's not typically affected, and it can give you a snapshot into someone's ovarian reserve. So that is on the ovarian reserve side of things as part of the initial workup. Other things that we will typically get right off the bat is going to be recommending on the female side, consideration for whether the fallopian tubes are open Mm and. Uh, or patent, and that can be done most commonly with something called an HSG, or hysterosalpingogram, or in other places, something called a hycosy, which is essentially a saline sonogram where you can put agitated bubbles through and just make sure that one or both of the fallopian tubes are open. In our clinic, we do HSGs as those were, we think, the gold standard for diagnosing tubal patency. And then also to get a sense of, the HSG can also give you a little sense of whether the contour of the uterus on the inside looks normal. Mm-hmm. And that also speaks to like what we had, are just talking about with uh, various um, uterine anomalies or acquired or not that can contribute to loss or affect implantation. That can also be done with a saline sonogram. So now we've talked about ovaries for evaluation the uterus and the tubes for evaluation, and then importantly, always we have to have sperm. So we—I always feel like women are going through so much when they're going through fertility treatments, and uh, you know they're getting poked and prodded. They're doing all these injections. They have all of this workup. And anyone who's had an HSG knows that it's not a pleasant thing to undergo. And the male partner just has to produce semen <laughs> no. but i also i often find that the male partners are commonly the most resistant to mm. getting worked up despite the semen analysis being relatively simple to go through so it's very important to remember i think for all fertility patients that you know in 30 to 40% of all infertility couples heterosexual couples that There's going to be a male component, so don't forget to to work that up as well, despite people being a little resistant to it. And that would be like the very initial basic workup sperm, eggs, making sure that there's a place for them to meet, which is the fallopian tubes, and making sure there's a place for them to implant, which is the uterus.
1: And so, do you do a sort of like any thyroid testing off the bat, or would you typically wait? and see how like start a tracking cycle and then go from there or yeah we
2: at least in our fertility clinic we run a tsh or thyroid stimulating hormone on everyone um, (laughs) just because it's very very common to have subclinical hypothyroidism meaning that people may not have uh, frank symptoms of overt hypothyroidism but it may their tsh may be high enough just enough that it's affecting their fertility and so because patients are going through so much. We just want to optimize the environment for, for that.
1: Yep. And spring like I saw Spring Fertility's website said that you have a very patient focused approach. And so sometimes I'm always kind of on the view of like test a lot up front. So, <laughs> but what about like DNA fragmentation tests? Is that something that you would typically wait or is that t- something that you would also include in terms of that off the bat testing?
2: Very controversial. Very Mm -hmm. controversial topic. Uh, We at our clinic, we do not typically run a DNA fragmentation index. There are a couple reasons for that. The first one is that I would argue, and I think a lot of my partners would argue, that it's not a test that's been entirely clinically validated. The, The second reason is that to, there's not a ton that can be done with the results of an abnormal DNA fragmentation index. So the, what we've, you know, what has been thrown out there loosely in some studies has been, you know, to optimize things like CoQ10 for the male partner. And I haven't seen great compelling data that that does a ton to affect the DFI. The second thing that has been written about more broadly is to do a testicular sperm extraction to overcome abnormalities in the DNA fragmentation index. That's a pretty invasive procedure to go through, I would say, that without without clear clinical benefits. So for those two reasons, I definitely it's not a first-line test that I would advocate for strongly, unless there was a very, very specific question or reason that the patient wanted it run.
1: Okay. Yep. And in terms of like an ANA test or something like that, that's something that you would again wait and sort of see how everything else goes. And then that would be something that you would conduct at a later stage if you are you know.
2: We, yeah. We don't typically run an ANA for a recurrent loss, even when we are thinking um, just, it's not one of the, um, it's a pretty non-specific marker for autoimmune disease. So it's not, it's not commonly done, it, it, at least from what I've seen where I practice. Not to say that it may not be useful in other contexts, but for recurrent loss specifically, it's not It's not one of the, the most common tests that I would
1: use. Hmm. Cool. And so when we're looking, when someone comes to your clinic and has experienced a recurrent loss, do you feel like, I guess essentially, like it's just a lot of detective work to figure out what's going on and do you in most circumstances do you find out why and are able to rectify that or are they going to, are there still a large proportion of tests when it's just
2: really unknown? It's oftentimes unknown and so that can be really I think in some ways liberating for patients to know that there's nothing overtly wrong but also sometimes very disappointing because of course everyone wants an answer to why do I keep undergoing this? And I think that's the toughest thing about recurrent pregnancy laws is that sometimes we just, and same with infertility in general, you know, 20% of at least in America is unexplained. And I think that's the toughest thing. That's the toughest thing we do in our job is definitely is how to, what are the next steps for, for patients and for couples who are going through this devastating time and when we can't provide them a very easy explanation, that's really, really brutal. That said, I think that my one message about all of this, about recurrent loss, would be that, you know, as devastating as it is to go through and as hard as it is, I think the important thing is to get the work up to make sure that, you know, the physician can't isn't re- make, leaving anything on the table, isn't missing anything that can be fixable. Second thing would be just that overall patients who have experienced recurrent losses, the studies show that they actually have an extremely high chance of having a live birth, even without any treatment, meaning they don't need to come see me for anything. They just need to keep trying on their own as hard as that sp- is sometimes but up to I think 70 to 80 percent of those patients will eventually have a baby to take home which is I think inspiring in some ways too and and contextually helpful to think about but yeah it is like you said Robin a lot of the times you just you just can't come up with an answer which can be great to hear that everything's healthy and normal but also frustrating
1: yeah absolutely but I think we that what you gave us just then was also the hope that we kind of needed to hear. I don't know if this is gonna be a too much information question, but like let's pretend like I'm pregnant, seven or eight weeks pregnant, and then I go to the toilet and I start bleeding. Mm -hmm. What should I do? Is there anything that I need to do? Is there anything like, is it like I start bleeding? Is there anything that I can do to sort of like stop what's happening? Is there anything that I need to be doing right now at home? or do i just call my fertility specialist or my OBGYN like what do i need what do i need to do in this moment
2: i think the first thing is just to make sure that you are are safe and when I say safe, I mean not bleeding so heavily that you are going to lose too much blood. It's very, very rare to have a miscarriage that keeps bleeding, keeps bleeding, keeps bleeding, and that the, that the patient loses so much blood herself that she needs a transfusion or procedure to stop the bleeding.
1: It's very, very
2: rare. That said, it's not impossible. And so if someone's at home bleeding just to make sure that they're safe, that they have a phone if they need help or, or you know, can seek medical attention if they need to, and just to make sure that you know that they have support there if, if necessary. So that's just on a little note on safety. The second thing is just to remember that there's unfortunately nothing that the patient, their doctor, their partner, unfortunately can do there's nothing that can be done to stop an early miscarriage from happening generally speaking i wish that there was you know a magic pill progesterone <laughs> something that we could give just to keep the pregnancy healthy and ongoing but unfortunately there there is no such um, magic bullet if you will So there's not a ton that can be done medically to to salvage the pregnancy if it's just destined not to keep going in that moment. But bleeding is not always miscarriage. And that's the last thing to remember is that I've had, I can't even tell you how many phone calls I've gotten from patients who say, oh my God, this is it. I know I'm miscarrying. The pregnancy is over, and if they're fertility patients and they're on medications, I always say stay on your medications, it's not over until we say it's over. Bring them in for an ultrasound the next day, heartbeat still. So, that's the last thing I think I want to you know comment is just that bleeding is not always equal, it's hard to know in the moment where that bleeding is coming from. So, until you we have an ultrasound or another test that tells us for certain that the pregnancy is not ongoing. That I would hope that the I would want to tell patients to you know try to stay hopeful and optimistic, realistic but optimistic, and if they're fertility patients, to stay on their medications.
1: Thank you so much, and I feel yeah that you literally segued right into my very last question, which was perfect often it does, like, bleeding does not necessarily mean a miscarriage. So it's just, I think, important for people to call, to never be afraid to go into the clinic and just triple check because there's so many different reasons and causes for bleeding. And then I think bleeding in pregnancy is a lot more common than people realize. Yeah. So are you ready for the speed round? (laughs) Sure. Do you have a book that you recommend everyone
2: reads? there's lots of great books out there, but I'll say one of my favorites is, um, especially for a female focused audience is Jane Eyre.
1: <laughs> awesome. What was for dinner tonight?
2: Um, my husband made lamb.
1: Mm-hmm. Nice. Delicious. Cool. And it's always more delicious when somebody else cooks it. Um, <laughs> and what's the one message, like if you had one thing that you could let all, I guess, patients or fertility warriors know, what would that be? The main message I would say is infertility is
2: never someone's fault. Miscarriages are never your fault.
1: Awesome. I love it. So where can everyone find Spring Fertility? What do you want to let everyone know if they want to come and chat with you or chat with any of the other team members at Spring Fertility? Is there anything that you would like to spoke right now about your clinic?
2: Oh, I just it's a it's a wonderful place to work and we love our patients. We're located in Northern California, so very far from you, but always happy to talk with patients, answer questions, have people come in for whatever reason. So definitely if anyone needs anything, be happy for them to reach out.
1: Super. Thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been really lovely talking with you about what is you- a really tricky topic so i appreciate you bringing us the facts and bringing us you know the details of what you guys do in your clinic um and what some of the potential causes and treatments for recurrent loss are thank you so much oh
2: no thank you so much the pleasure is mine
0: okay warrior i need to ask you a huge favor Did you know that the Fertility Warriors podcast comes out every Wednesday? So why not subscribe so that you get notified of future episodes? But also, if you liked this episode, and especially if you're a long-term listener, you would make my day if you would jump into your podcast player and leave me a written review. Seriously, I live for these. But more importantly, they tell the podcast gods that this podcast is helpful so that they can send it out to more people and you can help me help others in the process. I would be ever so grateful for a podcast review. But lastly, Warrior, I need to also let you know, I am not a doctor or a dietitian, or a financial advisor. I'm me and the information in this podcast is for information and inspirational purposes only, based on my own experiences. So please don't substitute the information you hear on the Fertility Warriors podcast for professional advice. And know that, girl, in the world of trying to conceive, there are no guaranteed pregnancy or other outcomes. Please check out my website, robinberkin.com if you would like to read my full terms and conditions.